0: You'll hear in your choir, but we will go directly now to the reading of the word. So, if you would open your Bibles, please to First Peter. When I was here three weeks ago, uh, I started in First Peter, and I thought might as well continue. So, we're going to uh, read in First Peter, chapter two, beginning with verse one. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also... and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us, for your many blessings that are beyond being able to be counted. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to be with other believers, to look into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring to my mind the thoughts that uh, you want me to bring out. I pray that you would protect us by your Holy Spirit from anything that is said that's not in accordance with your word, and that you would only let us hear what your word has to say to us. And we thank you, Lord, that, that uh, we can depend on your Holy Spirit to bear witness with our spirits and, and teach us what you would have us to know today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, just as a little bit of a refresher, my name is Philip Temple. Um, I am uh, actually not a reverend, as it says in the bulletin. Uh, I tried to explain that last time. Uh, apparently didn't make my point very clearly. But uh, because it appears in the bulletin again today that I'm a reverend, I'm not. Uh, they say that all lawyers are frustrated preachers, and most preachers are frustrated lawyers. And so the two go hand in hand. I actually make my living as an attorney. And uh, last time I said we have to pronounce lawyer very carefully because most people think you're saying liar. And uh, that's not the case. There are a few. Actually, when I thought about going to law school, I talked to my dad about it, who is a pastor. And he said, can, can Christians be lawyers? And uh, I said, well, uh, I I hope they can, and we certainly need Christian lawyers, and so uh, I became a lawyer, and I have been a Christian lawyer um, my whole career, but that also means that I like to talk, and I love God's word, and so those two things go together, and so some would say that I've been a frustrated preacher all my life. Old Mrs. Bryan you know every church has the sainted ladies and Mrs. Bryan was the sainted lady who was convinced that God had called me to preach and uh, she was extremely disappointed when she found out that not only was I not gonna be a preacher that I was gonna be a lawyer uh, that was a, a double blow to her but uh, she died a happy woman I think because uh, I did not go over to the dark side just because I became a lawyer but I'm a ruling elder at Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville, and uh, I love God's Word, and I like to teach it. And so I volunteered when Richard was leaving. Uh, he asked if I'd be willing to, to fill in a couple times, and I said, i would be great. I'd love to do that. I would like to say that it's good to be back, that you invited me back again, because the good job I did the first time. But the truth of the matter is, I agreed to come twice before you ever heard me the first time. <laughs> So you get me twice regardless of what you might think or even remember about the first time. But when I was here before, we started in this book of First Peter. And one of the points that was clear is that Peter is writing to people who are strangers and aliens where they were living. And we tried to make the point that followers of Jesus have been aliens wherever they've been ever since Adam and Eve sinned and they had to leave the Garden of Eden, the children of God have been foreigners. They've never been at home since. And our hope is not in this culture. It's in uh, the the work that God God did through Jesus. But I wanted to read, I found an article this week, I just came across it, uh, that was so shocking, and I, I debated about whether I should share this with you or not, but Uh, I'll tell you why I'm sharing it in just a minute, but the idea that we are not living in the place that's our home is made even more clearly by an article like this. The, The headline is, California Attorney General announced a civil rights investigation into a school district policy requiring staff to out transgender students. Just that language in the headline is shocking enough. But apparently, surprisingly enough, in California there was a school district who said they passed an ordinance, a requirement for their teachers and staff to notify parents if a student had decided or had expressed their desire to become transgender. The the school passed a rule that teachers were supposed to inform the parents about that. Now, that would seem to be without debate. But, the California uh, District Attorney decided that that might be a violation of those students' civil rights. Now, I'm going to read to you what the press release said. This is what the Attorney General said. There is a substantial interest in protecting the legal rights, physical safety, and mental health of children in California schools and in protecting them from trauma, harassment, bullying, and exposure to violence and threats of violence. Nobody could argue with that statement. The next statement says, this school district's forced outing policy, and that's the word he used, this district's forced outing policy threatens the safety and well-being of LGBTQ students vulnerable to harassment and potential abuse from peers and family members unaccepting of their gender identity. Today's announcement stresses our commitment to challenging school policies that target and seek to discriminate against California's most vulnerable communities. California will not stand for violation of our students' civil rights. Now, I don't read that to you to inflame your passions or to arouse your ire or to depress you or uh, to be a calamity howler. I read that because we can say we know we're in a foreign land but if you think or if we think my wife reminds me I shouldn't point at people when I talk. If we think that culture is somehow going to get better we're sadly mistaken. We live in this kind of world now and that's a frightening experience but like I said, believers in Jesus, followers of God, have been in a foreign land since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. And it's just like Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. So in light of that, how are we, as followers of God, supposed to live our lives with that in view? Peter is talking to exactly those kinds of people in those kinds of situations. These people that he's writing to are in what's now modern-day Turkey. Some of them have left Israel because of the persecution. Some of them are converts from the Gentiles. But they're living together in a land that's going to become increasingly hostile. This is right before Nero took over and right before Christians were publicly uh, martyred for their faith. But already they're starting to experience some real hardships. That's why in chapter 1... Peter said, even though you're going to face various trials, we can still rejoice. So that's what I wanted to look at today is how do we live as foreigners in this culture that is getting increasingly more foreign? Well, look at verse 4 in the verses that we read. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are living stones being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones. If you remember from the first chapter, we have a new birth because of what God did through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. We have an inheritance That we can't lose, it can't be spoiled, it can't be diminished, it can't be taken away from us. And it's a living hope because our Lord is a living Lord. So now Peter comes back to that and he says that as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus. As you come to him, you also are living stones. So now what does that mean? What does that mean to be a living stone? Well, the first thing I would point out is that it certainly means that we have a relationship to Jesus. Otherwise, this analogy wouldn't be worth anything. So the very first thing we notice is that Jesus is the living stone, and we, like him, are living stones. So we have a relationship with Jesus. But what does that mean? Uh, we, My wife and I have done some uh, premarital counseling, uh, and we use a program that... Uh, is a really good program because it asks each of the couples, each of the individuals, to answer a questionnaire. And then they match those, this, some other service matches those answers up, and it exposes areas of, they call them opportunities for growth, but we all know that that means weaknesses, and positive things. Well, this one couple, they, they, were both, they both professed to be Christians, and they were a wonderful couple. Uh, and they both ranked loving Jesus very high so that looked like an area of strength but when you dug down a little bit deeper and that was the nice thing about this program is that it gave you some of the bases for their answers when you dug down a little bit deeper their concept of who Jesus was was vastly different and so when we say that we have a relationship with Jesus what do we mean by that first of all we have to know who Jesus is and you think well everybody knows who Jesus is but from our passage last time, we saw that Jesus is at, at first our Redeemer. In, back in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the foundation, well, chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. So Jesus is our redeemer. He was chosen as the sacrificial lamb before the creation of the world, and it's with his precious blood that we're redeemed. But that also means that he's a living redeemer. We have a living hope because he is alive. And that verse just said that God raised him from the dead. Now, why is that important? Well, a lot of people have died for what they believe. And a lot of people have died for other people. But Jesus is the only one who, first of all, fulfilled all the elements of the law. Sometimes we forget about that. We think about his death and his resurrection, but we forget his perfect life. And sometimes I think it's subliminal, but sometimes we think, well, yeah, he was God. Sure, he could do all that. But he didn't do it as God. He did it as man. Jesus was incarnated as a full human. He did not leave his God deity. He didn't get rid of that. He was both fully God and fully man. We can't understand that. But what we do need to understand is that he fulfilled every element of the law as a human being. Nobody else could ever have done that. And then, not because he had any sins to die for, he presented himself as the living sacrifice. And so that's great, but he was still dead until God raised him from the dead. So not only did he lead a perfect life and he sacrificed himself, he is our living Lord because God raised him from the dead. Paul talks about that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a great discussion on the resurrection because the debate in Paul's day was that there were some people who professed to be believers who didn't believe that there was any resurrection. This is really corny, but most of those people were called Sadducees. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, and the way you can tell the difference is that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, which, which made them sad, you see. That's really corny, and I'm sorry, but... that that just popped into my head and it shows again that a speaker should be very careful about saying things that pop into his head but Paul has a great discussion in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection in general but the point that he makes is in verse 17 where he says and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins so it is Absolutely, not only essential, <clears throat> but critical that Jesus is not only our Redeemer and our living hope, but He's our living hope because He's our resurrected Lord. He has defeated sin and He has defeated death. And so He alone has the right to be, recall- be called our Redeemer. And He is our living Redeemer. So our faith is not futile. And that makes Him our cornerstone. And that's what our passage says. It says as you come to him the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him you also are like living stones being built into a house and it goes on to say in verse 6 I have I see I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone Now what's the importance of the cornerstone The cornerstone is that part in this kind of construction that determined the rest of the building it had to be plumb and straight and if that cornerstone wasn't set correctly if it wasn't the right cornerstone the building's going to be all out of whack now i just i read an article too not long ago about the leaning tower of pisa pisa and i didn't know this before i thought the ground settled and you know it just leaned over the truth of the matter is they determined that the footings that were poured for the foundation of that were off just a few, maybe not even inches, just a little bit. And they didn't realize it until they got to the third story of the thing and somebody said, I don't think that thing looks great. It was actually starting to lean when they got to the third story, but they thought, well, we've gone this far. Let's just go ahead and add the rest of it. And so they built it. you know. And sure enough, if you look at the pictures of it, uh, it's leaning. And it wasn't until recently that they discovered... Uh, our, our technology led them to the place where they could actually uh, stabilize it so that it's not going to fall over. But they also, that technology was also such that they could have straightened it up. But they didn't, because then it wouldn't be the leaning Tower of Pisa anymore, and that's what people go see. So they stabilized it and left it leaning. But my point in all that is that the reason it's leaning is because the foundation was off. Um, I am a... Uh, a do it yourself where I like construction. Uh, I have four grown sons and we're very thankful for them. Um, and I like to help them with things in construction, buying housing, that kind of thing. Now, I won't tell you what really happened, but the gist of the story is that I was helping one of my sons put an addition, little addition on the house, and there was vinyl siding on the house, and the new addition met in a corner, made a corner. So all we had to do was to match up the siding where it was because we didn't take that off just match it up and it was right beside a door so there were pieces about this long and uh, I was cutting, my son was putting them on cutting, putting them on, cutting, putting them on we were working really fast Uh, and after about the third or fourth piece I noticed that they weren't matching in the corner (laughs) and I pointed it out to my son uh, who didn't think it was a problem Well, that's a whole different part of the story. Uh, And those are the details we won't get into. My point of that story is that if that first one was off, then the rest of them are going to be off. And you might not notice it at the beginning, but over time it's going to be way off. So if we put our confidence or our relationship in anything for our spiritual life other than Jesus as the cornerstone, then we're going to be off. So it's a Sunday school answer to say you need to line your life up with the cornerstone. And that's a true statement, but what does that mean? Have you ever noticed that there are lots of things that we say in the Christian life that we all kind of understand, but sometimes doesn't really make sense? So when we say that we need to line our life up with the cornerstone, what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, some time ago uh, I was teaching a class on finishing well and it was mainly about old people dying well. But I came across an article by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges ended up being the, um, the leader of Navigators. And his life story is a fascinating one for a guy who uh, he's brilliant, but from a physical standpoint he didn't have a whole lot to uh, commend himself. Uh, he was odd looking, he had a squeaky voice, uh, but a brilliant mind and he wrote voluminously, and he also spoke publicly. And I was really surprised when I heard him deliver this lecture because he wasn't a great speaker, but he was a great thinker. And he came up with four essentials to finish well. And these four essentials are not just to finish well. These four essentials are going to make sure that we line up with the cornerstone. And I'm going to tell you what those four essentials are. These are his words. One, daily time of focused communion with God. Now, any relationship takes time. And we all know that. But he says this daily time of focused communion with God. Now, don't get hung up on the daily part. There are there are a lot of people who are naturally organized and administratively gifted, and I really don't like those people because it just comes easy for them. Some of us are a little less organized. Some of us have minds that wander. Some of us have a hard time structuring a daily time of devotion. And a lot of times we get hit over the head with that and say if you're not doing it daily then you're not whatever. So don't get hung up on the legalistic part about daily. The point that he makes here is focused. That we need to have a focused time of communion with God. And that can happen in a variety of ways. We won't go into how you can do that. But There are a lot of ways that you can have, but the idea is to both speak with God and listen to what God says. There was a lady who was a friend of ours. uh, She became a friend of ours. You may have heard of her. Her name was Darlene Dibler Rose. And she wrote a book uh, called The Evidence Not Seen. And it's about her time as a prisoner of war during World War II as a young lady missionary in in Indonesia. And there were lots of times, if you haven't read the book, you need to get it and read it. It's fascinating. She's dead now, but we got to know her. I won't go into all that. But anyway, we had the opportunity to get to know her. uh, And it was fascinating to me because she was one of the most spirit filled people I've ever been around. I mean, the Holy Spirit just exuded out of her. And when you read her book, a lot of times she'll say, I asked God, I talked to God, I asked God this, or I asked God this, and He answered me, and He said, and Every time what she quotes was scripture. She was never one of those people that made up things that God might have said. Every time her response was what God said was absolute scripture. How do you learn that? You learn that by spending time. And it's focused time. And it's time to to speak to God and it's time to hear from God. The second thing he said was the daily appropriation of the gospel. Now think about that. The daily appropriation of the gospel. How do you do that? Because the gospel is the good news. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. The gospel is that if we put our faith and trust in him, then we're his children. Do you have to do that every day? No, obviously not. But what, we, what his point is here is the daily appropriation of the gospel is telling yourself the truth. In our corporate prayer of confession, it talked about the list of things that are compiled against us in our minds and because of Satan and because of indwelling sin, there's a lot of guilt. And there's a lot of, of accusations that other people could bring against us, that the devil brings against us, that our own conscience brings against us. And that's in one sense good because it makes us realize that we need a Savior. But the daily appropriation of the gospel is tell yourself the truth. You are redeemed and your sin has been paid for. So you do not let your situation, your circumstances, or any accusations deprive you of the joy that you belong to God. And we have to do that daily. The third thing is a daily commitment to live... uh, I'm sorry, a daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. Now, in Romans chapter 12, I think it's the first verse, that Paul said, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. When I was young... I used to think, well, not used to think, I was told by all our youth directors that that meant that you were supposed to save yourself for marriage. But that's not what, I mean, certainly implicit in that. That may be true. But what Paul's talking about presenting yourselves a living sacrifice is you be willing to sacrifice, you make a commitment that God is in control and whatever he brings to you is right and you're willing to sign on. And you can't do that. We all have had situations where we've been a spiritual high, so to speak. We feel like we've been particularly close to the Lord. You can't live on that from day to day. You have to make that commitment every day that you're going to submit to whatever God has in store for you. And the fourth thing he says makes the third thing he says possible. Because the fourth thing he says is that we have to have a firm belief in the sovereignty and the love of God. A lot of us talk about the sovereignty of God. A lot of us talk about the love of God. But you have to take them together. God is sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. And if we're not careful, we, become, we can, can become fatalistic about that. God can do what he wants. But he doesn't just do what he wants. He does what he wants because of his love for us. So if you're facing a situation that you think God has forgotten about you, you tell yourself the truth. God's love and his sovereignty cannot be separated. And whatever situation you face, God knows about it, He ordained it, and you're in it because He loves you. So if you do those four things, you spend a daily or a, a time of focused communion with God, daily appropriation of the gospel, daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice, and a firm belief in the sovereignty of God, then you will be rightly related the cornerstone it's not just a rote list It's it's cultivating the relationship so the first thing that we see about being a living stone was that we have a relationship with a living redeemer who is the cornerstone the second thing I want to point out if you look back at the verse it says you are like living stones you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house now what does that mean well, I'll point out several things that it means, but one of the, things, the first thing it means is that we're not alone. We've been redeemed. We're one of God's children, but we're one of God's many children. With all the emphasis today in culture about individual rights and autonomy and I just got to experience Jesus on my own, that is not what the Bible talks about. If you've been redeemed, you've been redeemed to be part of a spiritual house. Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses. We're part of a body that is, from the very beginning to the very end of time, all those who've been redeemed and put their faith and trust in Jesus. I think that there's an innate desire to belong to something. Um, you remember the old television show, Cheers? most of you probably, too, well, some of you are too young to remember Cheers, but it was actually a, a situation comedy about, a bar. But the theme song was it's a place where everybody knows your name. And typically in every show, as the different characters come into the pub, everybody greets them. And it's all happy and it's all joyous. And actually my um, law partner, whom who um, is um, an interesting fellow, um, was saved later in life. His testimony is very interesting. But He told me that the thing when he became a Christian, the thing he missed the most about his old life was the camaraderie that he had with people in the bars. Not the drinking and the carousing, but just the fellowship. And what a sad commentary it was that when he became a Christian, he felt like he lost that. So if we're part of God's, if we've been redeemed and we're part of God's children, we belong. And that's what these people in asia and turkey were concerned about they were from different walks of life they were in places that was not familiar to them some of them were converts from places that they were from but they are being persecuted now because they changed to the christian faith i mean these folks felt like they were all alone but peter points out to them over in verse 9 you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation A people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're a child of God, then you're a part of his body. You're a part of his kingdom. You belong. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. And that's what we talk about in terms of the church universal or the invisible church. The Apostles' Creed that you just said this morning says that you believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. That means the whole church from beginning to end, from the first believer to the last. That's the church universal, and we're part of that. And that's great. But how does that help you today where you are? Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses, and we have an encouragement from that kind of thing. The point is that the local body of believers is just as important to belong to as it is to belong to the universal church. Now Paul, in his missionary journeys, um, did just that. He he didn't convert people and then just leave them there. Over in Acts chapter 14, there again, reading about Paul's journeys is is fascinating to me. Uh, He had been in Lystra and he, uh, uh, he had, uh, had spoken there so eloquently that the people in Lystra thought that he was a god and they actually brought sacrifices to him. And he said, no, 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 you know, that's, you're misunderstanding the message. And overnight some other people came in and said, that guy's a charlatan and he's going to try to fool you and they actually took Peter, Paul out and stoned him. So that's how fast that would change. But he goes on to Derby, the next city, and it says in verse 21, well, let's yeah, let's verse 21 of chapter 14 of Acts. They preached the good news, meaning Paul and Barnabas, in that city, meaning Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples to encourage them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God," they said, and Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of, for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So it's not just enough to be part of the universal kingdom. The way the church is organized from the very beginning, after Jesus was was resurrected and went to heaven, the the early church was. The organizing into local bodies, appointing elders, and meeting together. So part of being a living stone is being built into a building, and that building, at least in part, is the local church. So now what does that mean for you all as part of a local church? What do you do? Well... Look back at verse 5 again. It says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is the local church to do? The local church is to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now there may be other things that you do, but this says that the church is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, Peter says here that believers are a holy priesthood. That's clearly a reference to the Old Testament priesthood system. And that's no longer necessary since Jesus has uh, redeemed us. So now we are each part of a royal priesthood to offer sacrifices. This says spiritual sacrifices. That cannot mean anything to do with the old sacrificial system. And it can't mean sacrifices that have anything to do with the propitiation of our sins because Jesus already took care of that. So what are spiritual sacrifices? What kind of spiritual sacrifices do you make as a, a spiritual building? Well, I'll point out three. You can think of all you want, but I'll point out three. Um, one is worship. What we're doing today. That's a spiritual sacrifice. You come and you blend your voices You hear each other sing. We hear the reading of the word. We confess our sins. We reiterate what it is that we believe, and we hear the preaching of the word, regardless of how good or bad that might be. Uh, And that's a spiritual sacrifice. And there's a benefit from doing it together. Now, you all saw what happened during COVID and how that affected not being able to get to, for some people, affected not being able to get together to worship. There's something about corporate worship that you can't have worshiping by yourself. The Presbyterians call that a means of grace. One of the ways we experience God's grace and his encouragement is by meeting together and worshiping together. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are here. But we'll get to some some of those issues in just a little while. But my point is that worship is something that's to be done together as a spiritual sacrifice. um, A number of years ago, when one of our kids was probably five or six years old, we were coming home from church, and it must have been a particularly moving service. I don't remember anything about it. But as we got in the car, my son said, Mom, I just feel all Gloria inside. He was five or six. Well, that encouraged our hearts, that he felt anything other than boredom, but... The fact that he said, I feel all Gloria inside. I've thought all, a number of times over the years. Isn't that a great way to feel when you leave worship? All Gloria inside? That's what it is to meet together and worship together as a spiritual sacrifice. To feel all glory inside. Well, the second thing that might be a spiritual sacrifice is sharing your gifts with one another, we all have spiritual gifts, and I'm not talking about that list in Galatians about what the fruits of the Spirit. We all have gifts to use in the body of Christ. Uh, maybe you don't think you do, but you do. In First Corinthians chapter twelve, Paul has another long, extensive part about that. But in verse fourteen, I'll just read a little bit of this. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, other than looking very odd, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. So everybody has a role to play. Maybe you think you don't have any gifts. My wife was involved in a ministry at our church that that was a a Bible study and time of encouragement for young mothers. And at one time they had about 150 young mothers that were coming to that. And there was a lady in our church who was elderly... But she was so pleased to see that ministry. She wanted to help. And she said, I can't do much, but I can rock babies. And she came every Tuesday for years and sat in the nursery and rocked those babies so the mothers could go to that Bible study. You've all got something to contribute. I had another friend who couldn't help but make money. Now, that you would think that... that that would be a good gift. But he was frustrated about it. You know, I always thought that was so odd. He felt guilty because he made so much money. And he did it in two or three different businesses. He would start feeling guilty about making so much money that he would shut that business down and go start another one. And then now he's start making money. He just couldn't not make money. But think of the gift that is. If God gave you the ability to make money, then how much you could do with that gift. I've always told God, I would do right if you let me make money. I would give it away. But I must not be as sincere to the Lord as it sounds in my head because he's never given me that opportunity. But whatever your gift is, be willing to share it with the church. Everybody has abilities. You just need to find out what yours is. And then the third thing is to love one another. And that's a real sacrifice. Now you may say, now he's stopped preaching and gone to Medellin. But loving one another is probably one of the most difficult things in a local body because we are all personalities. I've been accused of not liking people. I used to say my wife accuses me of that. That's not exactly true because she knows in her heart that I really do like people. But I generally don't make judgments about people right off the bat. Judy loves everybody she meets. I, on the other hand, i pretty neutral. It doesn't take me long to decide whether I'm going to particularly like some people or particularly dislike some people. I read a novel not long ago about an old curmudgeon retired detective. Uh, and the whole character development of him was just that he was just an, an old, miserable guy. And he was investigating this thing with his grown grandson. So the interaction between them was very interesting. But at one point he said something nice about somebody. And the grandson said, Grandpa. I'm surprised you said that. I didn't think you cared about people. And he said, oh, I care about people. I just don't like them. And I've been accused of that sometimes. But that's not actually true. I do care about people. But we don't have the option not to love each other. God didn't give us that option. Look back at the, at the very beginning. Well, at, at the end of chapter 1, something that we didn't get to the last time I was here, But in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by observing the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, think about what that says. Now that you've been purified, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for the brothers. You have love. That's an affirmative statement. You have love, now love deeply from the heart. Now why do you suppose Peter said it that way? Because he knows us, for one thing. We've been purified by obeying the truth, obeying the truth of putting our faith and trust in Jesus, the living sacrifice. So we have love. We don't have the option to say that we can't love somebody. Because we've been purified By obedience to the truth, meaning that we are now redeemed and we're one of God's children, we have love. But the imperative is, now do it. Sometimes that's really hard. We all know people, well maybe I shouldn't suggest that you start thinking about people that you know that you can't love or that's hard to love. But we all know we have them. There was a lady in our, a friend of ours, who was particularly difficult to love. And um, she still is, by the way. But <clears throat> my father died uh, when our children were still small, and he was out in Texas when he died. And uh, we were going to have to go out there; it was right at Christmas time, so we were going to have to leave and go. But we had a school program that the, Judy thought that the kids ought to go to. So it was Christmas time, the Christmas program. So we went to the Christmas program. When we came home, the lights were on in our house. And that was no big deal. Our house was always open. People could come and go uh, anytime. But the lights were on in our house, and when we went in, it was this lady that's particularly rancorous most of the time. And she and her grown daughter were doing our laundry and polishing our kids' shoes because she knew that we were having to get together quickly to get out to Texas. She expressed that love to us. How do I have any position to say, that she's unlovable love is one of the greatest sacrifices that we can make to God especially in a local body we don't have the option not to love each other so those are spiritual sacrifices to worship to sacrifice our gifts and to love each other so what does that mean what's the application here well, I can think of several things, but one of the there are just two things I wanted to point out. I don't know a lot of you, but I do know the reputation of this church. Uh, you all have a great reputation for serving each other. You have a great reputation for continuing on. But when you're without a pastor, and I've been in churches that are between pastors, the temptation is that you might lay back a little bit. You might wait and see what happens. You might get a little bit bored with all these different preachers that aren't very good and you might start withdrawing. I I urge you, I exhort you, don't do that. The church is not the preacher. The church is you. And you all encourage encourage each other by meeting together. So don't get discouraged about the time it takes and that leads me to the second point, be patient with your pulpit committee. I've been on pulpit committees And a lot of times the tendency is, how hard could it be? Find somebody. But the man that God has for you is out there, and the pulpit committee is committed to taking the time it takes to find that person. And if you all love each other the way we've been talking about and use your gifts in this meantime, then it doesn't matter how long it takes to find the right guy. And you will all have a common sense of who that person should be. So be patient. Now, I said there were three things, but there are actually four about being part of a church. Uh, look at verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live good lives. Such that, live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, that article that I read at the beginning, like I said... I didn't read that to engender fear in anybody. Our tendency, though, when we start to think about things like that and how bad our world is, is to circle the wagons and withdraw. And it's easy with people of like mind and being in a local body to do that. But that's not what Peter says we're supposed to do. Peter says that we're supposed to live such lives, such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good works. And what I just read to you at the beginning is an indication that what we used to think was just normal is now going to be hostile. We can't survive individually just being children of God. To do good works so the pagans can see it is going to require a body of believers. That's why it's so important to understand that is living stones, we're connecting to the living cornerstone and we're built together into a spiritual house not just for our own good but for the good of the pagans who see our good works and even though they might be hostile and even though they would say that our works are evil, they will know at least in judgment day that it was the right thing and you can't do that by yourself. So I encourage you to recognize that you're a living stone and that you're part of a living building. Let me pray. Father, again, we pray that you would remove any element of human interpretation that's not in line with your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak the truth of your word to our hearts, that you would encourage those who need encouragement, and that you would convict those that need to be convicted, that you would give us your love so that we might love one another from the heart. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now let's sing together number 521. My hope is built on nothing less.